Hey, good morning. I guess we know who has DVR, so it's good that you guys are here. There's only, I was stoked when the Seahawks schedule came out this year. There's only two 10 a.m. games. So I love the Seahawks. I love you guys more. So um, I'm Jack. After that brief introduction, just a sec. And uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Good to see some <clears throat> new faces or familiar faces that I haven't seen here before. So welcome to Bethany Northeast. Uh, before we dive into our uh, time in the Word together this morning, quick, I want to do a quick update for us as a community because we've been, uh, and this is kind of a, for visitors, this might, just part of our, our family conversation. So uh, old mentor of mine, Earl Palmer, called it a kitchen talk. So imagine yourself in the kitchen of the house. And when you're in the kitchen of the house, we're sitting and having the real conversation. So we've been having um, a conversation together as a church body about the potential of partnering with a local church here in Lake City called Lake City Presbyterian Church and moving our worship services, our worship service, up to their space. Uh, And this has been over a period of several months now. We've had a couple town hall meetings the last two Sundays, and some of you were able to attend that, and I really am grateful that those that were able to do so stayed behind and were participating participate in the conversation. Then we sent out an email. This is why I, need, I want your email if you attend here, because then I get to send out emails to you infrequently, but usually with the purpose. And so we got a lot of great feedback. So if you took the time to fill that survey out I sent, thank you very much. I know many of you did. If you have no idea what I'm talking about and you'd like to be on our email list, you can always leave your email address in the back at the table. We'll definitely not spam you. Just a way for us to stay connected. So we've got input. And it's been good. And I just wanted to update you on where we're headed and what, what's going on. Uh, I feel like we've gotten a lot of data from you guys. And a lot of the data, if you think of it in terms of just kind of technical data, is leaning in the direction of making this move. Uh, the staff feel pretty aligned in that direction. But I feel like we're missing one data point. And this is from a conversation I have with a friend here. And that data point is just a conversation with God. Go figure, right? As a community. And so here's what I want to invite us to do for the next two weeks. From now, October 2nd, until October 16th, is just invite our congregation to two weeks of prayer and fasting. Okay? And this is how I'd love this to look. Uh, I'd just love for you to devote yourself to seeking God and seeking God's will for our community for two weeks until October 16th. Just praying. I know you all pray, or most of us do. Asking the Lord to reveal to you where do you want our church to be physically? We know that place matters. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ reveals that to us. He, he lived on earth, took on a body, had a zip code, you might say. He cares about the places his church, as the body of Christ today, dwells, inhabits, right? Would you agree? And so I want you to be praying about this. Uh, so we'll do that for two weeks. And if you are led to fast, which is just a practice, literally, of just skipping a meal. I'm going to put it in very mundane terms, skipping a meal or skipping a day of meals just to seek the Lord. So, and I'm just going to invite you to fast twice, okay? Over that two-week period, not even a full day, like one meal. So you're at work, it's lunch hour. Fast or breakfast or whatever, and just seek the Lord. Go for a walk. Uh, Spend time with Him. Ask Him what He thinks. See if He opens anything up to you. And what I'd love to get from you, and I really am going to invite you to do this, is if you get anything from God, it could be a weird dream, some of us dream, It could be a yes, it could be a I'm not sure, it could be a I just heard this word from God. I want you to share that with me. Most of you have my email address, my phone number's in my email signature, feel free to call me. Uh, But we haven't made it a full decision yet because I want to involve us in that process. Does that make sense? And then on the 16th, my hope is to be able to share that with you. And the reason we're trying to make this decision is so we're not just floundering for months on end to... (laughs) Uh, you know, to the bitter end, you know, but we're really trying to make a careful and thoughtful decision as a community. Okay, are you with me? I know that many of our community are not here this morning for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, And so I will be sending out this email tomorrow uh, with the same details. And so you can check your email and you'll get that as a reminder of just inviting you to pray with us, okay? And then the final thing is uh, twice during this next two weeks, once each week, Jenny and I and Sonia... uh, are going to make ourselves available, I'll put this in the email, to be at Lake City Prez. And so it'll hopefully be at a time that's convenient for some, but probably inconvenient for most, because I I was there on Monday night until, I don't know how late, Keith, but Keith was there with me until like midnight. 
just praying and talking. And I don't think that's going to work for most of you. <laughs> I love it. but uh, So we'll try and provide a couple times during those two weeks for you to maybe take time to come up, see the building, walk through it, and pray. Pray around it, okay? Because I know that would probably help some of you to see it, okay? All right, enough on that. Let's take a moment just to breathe and pray, and then we'll go into God's Word together. God, thank you uh, so much for this community. So we're just going to take a moment to pause uh, and just take a moment to be silent together and just uh, invite your spirit to uh, be in our midst. And so we do that now, God. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that the word uh, was made flesh in you, that this word we look into today uh, was really revealed by you, uh, made true by you, (laughs) and uh, profoundly shapes our lives because of you. And so, God, all of us who are seeking to follow you, would you open our hearts to new revelation, uh, shape our steps, our decisions, uh, shape our, our thoughts, Uh, shape our hearts even, God, so that as we leave this place today, we'd be people, uh, both collectively as well as individually, that would be shaped by you as we seek to follow you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, uh, we're in this third week now of this new series called Constant, uh, and we're just looking through the, we're reading the Bible together, but we're reading it narratively as like a story, and so we're looking at various themes. So today we're looking at the theme of, of humanity or identity, okay? And uh, if you do, does anybody have one, not have one of these yet, these booklets? I should have asked our greeters. I think we have some on the back table. This is just a companion guide that will allow you, if you are in a small group or um, individually or as a family, study along with this series. So, yeah, Jenny's got some. So if you don't have one and you'd like one, just raise your hand. And it's a good place to take notes as well, though we have the outline in your bulletin. And so you can take notes there. Um, and just a heads up, we're going to follow the same outline every week at every campus for the entire series. And so it's going to follow this, this narrative uh, plot line, so to speak, and that's going to be on the screen as I go through today. So, and that's just creation, disruption, hope, and culmination. That's kind of the, the arc of Scripture, you might say, okay, the story of Scripture. And so today, just to set up this idea, I want to share uh, a story with you. I was just in Rwanda with... Mark and Karen, it seems like every time I see you guys, I'm talking about Rwanda, but it was a good trip. And so we went with a mission team from Bethany. (laughs) Okay, I'm laughing because I, (laughs) never mind, just had like a deja vu moment. I'm I'm just off track right now. So I was uh, coming back from Rwanda, (laughs) we saw each other in Amsterdam, okay, so in the airport, randomly, that was wild, so okay. Uh, was on the way to Rwanda and back from Rwanda, and uh, like many of you, if you've ever traveled long flights, these are two 10-hour flights, especially Mark and Karen, we binge-watched um, the movies, right? And there's some good, if you've been on international flights lately, there's some actually really good movies on Delta. These guys were synced up with like four seats. I did not participate in that. So, uh, And uh, there's those in-flight movies, most of which are pretty good these days some of which are not, and some that you've never seen in theaters. And this is where I kind of went in. Uh, the, the straight-to-DVD movies, you know what I'm talking about. So on the way back from Rwanda, I had this tactic. I'm going to stay awake all the way because I didn't want to have jet lag. That didn't work out, by the way. I was ruined for like a week, really. My parents my family can tell you about it. But uh, there's this movie I watched while these guys slept. You guys fell asleep. And so you're going to hear about this. It's this, and it's called The Phenom. Has anybody seen this? You haven't, because it's straight to DVD. And I was shocked because uh, it has Paul Giamatti and Ethan Hawke in it. And I was like, what the fat? I mean, like, these guys are heavy hitters and straight to DVD. So here's, it's a good movie. It's probably like a B or C, like not, a, not an A movie. That's why it went straight to DVD. But it's a good movie. And it's about this young man, Hopper Gibson, who's a baseball player. And it's kind of based on a true story. Um, first round draft, draft pick of the Atlanta Braves. Right out of high school. He's got this amazing gift. He's a pitcher, and he can throw just lightning speed, okay? But he has this really rough childhood. Um, his father, Ethan Hawke's character, is all tatted out. He's an addict. He's a drug dealer. He's constantly in and out of prison. His parents are, and he's absent, but he's also overly abusive. He's abusive and overbearing, okay? And so uh, he gets drafted to play in uh, the majors, 
And things, let's just say, did not go well for him. He actually got like uh, six wild pitches in a row in one game in this story when the movie starts. I'm ruining it for you, by the way. So if you don't like spoilers, close your ears. But it's straight DVD, so you're not going to watch it. But anyway, so he has this, his life just goes, spins out of control. Not only professionally, he gets sent down to the AAA, but also personally. All of his relationships are just falling apart around him. His girlfriend, his mom, his dad, all these things. So he's down in AAA, and they want to coach him back up because they've invested a ton of money in this guy by drafting him. So his therapist, who's Paul Giamatti, uh, they uh, meets with him, and they sort of trace... It, the, so the film traces their relationship, which sounds like another movie you've seen, probably, that was in the theaters. Good Bull Hunting, yeah. So it basically is Good Bull Hunting, but it's still good, okay? Though Good Bull Hunting was better, I think. Anyway, so in the film, they're talking about life, okay? They're talking about what's going on, right? And Giamatti asked Johnny Simmons, who's, who plays Hopper Gibson, this question. Do you think you could ever get back to this place in your life where you can enjoy baseball again? Do you think you could ever get back to this place in your life where you can enjoy baseball again? Okay? And uh, Hopper Gibson, Johnny Simmons, says, because uh, he's not enjoying his life. He's exhausted. Uh, he can't even sleep. He's so exhausted. He's asking for sleeping pills from this therapist because he can't even sleep. And Giamatti is trying to help him unlock what's wrong with his heart and his soul. Because he's, he's sensing something's wrong with him. And he says, I don't know. I, the only time I can remember enjoying baseball, I can remember enjoying life, was when I was five years old. Can you, I mean, think about that for a moment. He's a professional baseball player, and it's, it's many of us, right? So, and he began to talk about that and discovering what it looked like to get back to that place. I mean, there's which is a huge thing if you've ever tried to press back into your memories and when you were five or six or whatever it was when you can remember joy and, and excitement about life. My son's six and, uh, or five. Is he six or five? I don't even know anymore. The kid, man, he's driving me crazy. So he was up at five this morning. So, um, and to, to press back there if you're tired and you tried to do that is really hard. So this film goes on. It ends with this. There's a spoiler alert. He goes uh, to prison to see his dad. His dad's in prison and forgive him for all this hurt that he's done. And his dad, you know, is weeping. And, it's, and then the film just ends. I literally had to go home. I watched it this weekend because I wanted to see it again, but it wasn't that good. And uh, I'm Googling to see if I got, like, cut short because it just ends. And that's the end of the movie. I'm like, What? So I'm watching this film on the plane. Full disclosure, these guys are asleep, and I'm just I'm weeping. This is on the way home from Wanda, and I'm a little tired. Everybody in the plane's asleep. Like, I'm weeping, and I'm looking around to make sure nobody can see me, you know, because I'm just thinking about my life and getting back to this place of innocence in relationships and uh, that one, a place that was full of joy and laughter. And this film just stirred that up in me, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> So there's that. Okay, now I'm weeping. What about you? I mean, what about you? This is my question for you today. Uh, see, there's this deep longing in us. I don't care if you follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus. To get back to this place where relationships are filled with joy, right? Or permeated with justice. You see all this injustice in the world. Yesterday I heard about this uh, brothel in Bangladesh. I was just ruined by it. And then I, it's clickbait. Just don't follow clickbait, especially if you're like me and you're a news junkie. And then I hear about another uh, innocent African-American man who's sitting on his front porch, locked out of his house, and gets arrested for sitting on his front porch, locked out of his house. And I started to think about all the times I've been locked out of my house, and I've never been even approached by the police. Uh, I was ruined. So we're, there's injustice, and, and, and we want to get back to this place of justice and innocence and intimacy as it was intended by God. By God whether that's a relationship with a parent, as with Hopper Gibson, or your spouse, or a coworker, or, you know, as you wrestle with these immense broken issues in our world and you feel helpless like I did yesterday. Uh, what does it mean to be fully human? This is a question I wrestled with profoundly while we were in Rwanda, as I looked into people's lives that had been so deeply affected by a genocide just 24 years ago, 25 years ago, where their lives were just ruined by it. And they're asking the question every day, what does it mean to be human? When I see so much human uh, pain and brokenness around me, and I've been affected by it, 90% of Rwandans were affected somehow, like personally, by the genocide. You saw somebody die. What does it mean to be human? 
and to experience and express the character of God inside of a relationship, okay? So those are some of the questions I want to meditate on with you this morning. And as we do so, I really believe God's going to reveal some, uh, he's going to answer and reveal some things to us through these passages in front of us, okay? All right. So creation, we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 again. It looks like we're just doing a series on Genesis 1 and 2, just so you know. But that's where the Bible really, I think, there's so much theology in these, these two chapters. It's probably like the most important two chapters of your Bible. I'll just say that. Most of us never get there. We just skip to John, Mark, John, Luke, Mark, you know, that whole gospel thing. I would really invite you to spend some time in Genesis 1 and 2. And so in Genesis 1, uh, humanity is, we're told in Genesis 1.27, made in the image of God. Okay? Really, it's, it's repeated elsewhere in other parts of Genesis, Genesis 5. Genesis 9, okay, you get the same declaration. We're made in the image of God. Not just some of us, but all of us. All humanity, male, female, black, white, every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, made in the image of God. Every religion, every sexual preference, it doesn't matter. You're made in the image of God, okay? Are you with me? Now, discussions on the image of God have, are pretty complicated. If you, theologians love this stuff, and so there's troves of books and sermons and commentary, Okay? But if you read Genesis, like Genesis 1, 5, and 9, three mentions, three little verses, uh, it just seems to indicate to me as I study this this week that the concept was clear to the writer and the original readers, very clear. Not, there's no books on it for them. There's no like, sermons on it for them. It's just like image of God, image of God, image of God. Let's move on in the story. So to me, it just seems like there's this uh, principle that it's pointing to that sometimes the simplest explanation is the best. So I'm going to try and give you a simple explanation of what this means. And so follow me here. Uh, we know God is spirit. This is John 14, or 424. So he's not visible to the eye. I don't see God out there physically, okay? He's not visible to my eye. However, we also know that it was in the heart of God to reveal God's nature and character in a visible way. So if you read Colossians 1.15, which is what we, we read this morning, he is the image of the invisible God. You with me? Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. We know that, we believe that, if we're New Testament people. God's original plan was that, that nature would be revealed, his nature would be revealed through men and women on earth. That's his nature. He wants to reveal who he is. So we're created with this capacity, this ability to bear God's image. We're image bearers, okay? God's likeness on earth, okay? I don't see God, but I see his likeness. His image, Are you, okay? And what this means is that being an image bearer has more to do with humanity reflecting attributes of God than God's physical characteristics. Like this doctrine of the image of God is not about that God is a man or a woman, okay? Or neither. That God has long white beard. Like you remember that movie with, uh, what's his name, where he becomes a God? Um, Tim, Jim Carrey, yes, thank you. We could just do some trivia right now. But you remember he has that big white beard. No. Whatever images you have been given of God, that he's this cosmic killjoy and he's abusive or he's whatever he is, wipe your mind, okay? The image of God is in, is in some unique way different than the rest of creation. It's, but at the same time, it's expressed through all of creation, specifically human beings, okay? Okay. Uh, and such as, take for example, and I'm talking about attributes of God, take creativity. And I know all my scientist friends are going to disagree with me here. But human beings are uniquely creative. Uniquely. And, and, and like, we're artists, we're builders, we're, we're uniquely creative. And I know other animals are creative and studies have shown this. Uh, but we're, it's, and it's a good debate to have. But you, human beings are uniquely creative. And God is the creator of heavens and earth. Okay. God's desire for justice. I don't know of another species on the planet that has desire for justice and that can do such great injustice at the same time. Uh, human beings are unique in pursuing justice. Uh, God's, it's love. Like, this is a great debate amongst philosophers, uh, mystified theologians like myself, psychologists. Do animals love? We don't know unless you've been to Narnia where they speak. We don't know if they love. We maybe when the dog looks at you, is it looking for food or does it love you? I don't know. Here's the key: we are unique in God's creation because of our relation to God, our relation, our, our characteristics that we can exhibit of who God is. Character 
Are you with me? And so that requires relationship. Uh, all of us, every human being has been created with this capacity to reveal God's character. And, and here, all we need to do, some of us do it better than others, but all we need to do in order to reveal God to others is live in relationship with God on this ongoing basis. Uh, we need to choose relationship. This is what the image of God's all about, choosing relationship. And there's prominent, lots of examples of this in the Old Testament especially. Like you'll have people like Abraham who's called the friend of God. You'll have Jacob who wrestles with God, wrestling. I wrestle with my son. That's our intimacy. Moses who meets with God face to face. Uh, David, man after God's own heart. Uh, Hagar, my favorite uh, of, of many of the characters in the Old Testament, she's on the run. She's been abused. She's a slave. She meets with God in the desert. First person in the entire Bible to give God a name, an Egyptian slave on the run. And you know what she says? You are El Roy. She declares God as El Roy, which means the God who sees. And here's what she says, because in, in Genesis 16, 13, I have now seen the one who sees me. Isn't that profound? She has a relationship with God that's unique. Uh, this deep, and so the deep theological implication that's, I hope, very simple as well for us is that we are image bearers and that God can show up and does show up in human beings. He shows up. So I've said a few times, I don't see God, and yet all I see here is God. God shows up in human beings. Uh, and, and not just some, but this is, the, I think, the crux for our society. He shows up in all of human beings. Uh, Acts 2.17, Peter is preaching this prayer, or preaching this sermon, and he declares this over a bunch of pagans in the city. God's desire is to pour out his spirit onto all flesh. All flesh. God is not discriminating in his search to express his character and his likeness. God chooses to pour out his spirit on all flesh. He wants to do that. Okay? So the Bible says no matter where, who you are, where you're from, what your record is, it doesn't matter how low you've gone in life, how high you've risen, it doesn't matter if your race, sexual orientation, ethnicity, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Every human being is made in the image of God and reflects God in some way. Not fully, but really, okay? Every one of you reflects the image of God in some unique way. What you do through, with your work, in your relationships with others, uh, your desire for things, that God, wisdom, justice, all those wholeness, that is God-given, okay? Which has these enormous implications as we apply this to our life. I want to look at three really quickly. Uh, the first is on our ethics. So when God chooses a nation, nation of Israel, to display God's character collectively, God gives the nation tablets of stone, right? Ten commandments that were mission critical to knowing how to be image bearers, really. They're not just rules on stone or on the page for us, but they're, they're important for us to reflect on how to bear God's image in the world. And so you could just say it like this. God's not a thief, so don't steal. God's not a liar, so don't bear false witness. Don't lie. God's not a murderer, so don't kill. And by the way, remember what Jesus said about murder. You can kill people with your words. Think about that for a moment. God's not an adulterer, so be faithful in your relationships, especially in the ones where you're in covenant relationship, marriage, uh, faithfulness in church, those kinds of places. God has a rhythm of work and rest. This is the Sabbath. So live in rhythm, rest and work. Work is good, but also don't forget to rest. How many of us are not resting right now appropriately? I'm not. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, and so God would have us rest because that's what God did. And I want to bear God's image to you by resting. So that's the first, on our ethics and how we live out our lives. The second is the implication uh, in the way in which we treat people that cross our path. So Friday, I'm walking home from Les Schwab, Elizabeth. Yeah, Les Schwab. We blew out a tire in our car. Another story. But I'm walking through this neighborhood. We live in Pinehurst now. And, it's, and so I'm walking through this neighborhood and, uh, over by Holler Lake. And there's this guy, it's like 8 in the morning, and there's this guy standing on the corner of a street with a piece of poster board, bright green, black writing on it. It says, God is imaginary, love relentlessly. And I walk, I didn't want to talk to him. Like, I'm like, on my way home, you know, I got this sermon to write, you know. Um, but then, 
And he's in like the middle of a neighborhood too. He's not even in Aurora or I-5 or anything. Like, I'm just like, this guy is totally checked out to lunch. Because if I'm going to stand on the street corner with that sign, I want to make sure I'm seen. And there's literally, I was the first person he'd seen. He smiled at me. And so I'm like, hmm, I should, there's something nagging. So I turned around and went back to the guy. And I assumed he's like some devout atheist or something. Uh, or like he's crazy. You know, middle of a neighborhood, like with this sign. And so, but something, so I went back. And I asked him about the sign. I said, you know, that's, those two things seem very odd. They don't seem like they go together. You know, God is imaginary, love relentlessly. Usually you'd see like something like, God is amazing, love relentlessly, or, you know, whatever. You get, you get what I'm saying? And he said uh, this. This is, I had this profound moment. Do you know what it means to imagine something? And so I was kind of stumped. And so I said, hey, tell me what it means to imagine something. I'm, just, I'm like, now this guy's going to nail me, Right. Uh, he quoted Einstein. I'm not kidding. Imagination is more important than knowledge. And then I'm sure this guy's crazy, right? And then he said this thing, and I wrote it down because it was a, uh, this is, I was kind of blown away. He says, more than merely seeing what is unreal or fantastic. Throw this one up. Because I had to, I want you to see this. This guy on the street corner. More than merely seeing what is unreal or fantastic. Find it, Greg. Man, I worked so hard on this slideshow. Okay, you're not going to find it. Well, if you're taking notes. More than merely seeing what is unreal or fantastic, there it is. This guy, I don't even know his name. Imagination is used to image anything that is real but not visible. More than merely seeing what is unreal or fantastic, God is imaginary. Imagination is used to image something that is real but not visible. Love relentlessly. And I was like, okay, you don't even want to know what I do. And can I take that down because I'm a pastor and, I'm, and he just he didn't even tell me what he did or what he was there for. I'm really kind of still processing that encounter. So here's, here's how this applies. Can we learn to begin to see Christ in the people who cross our path literally? That was Jesus. It was, I mean, literally, with no strings attached. I don't know what he does, who he is, where he lives, whether that's on your walk or drive to work. You're on the bus, you know, and the guy's sitting next to you. Or in your neighbor, either that slightly standoffish neighbor or the one who's slightly more engaged, whose dog poops on your lawn, okay? Or here in Lake City, uh, or I should say there in Lake City, where there are homeless men living in Tent City right now. Uh, and I've been pondering this idea of taking my son through Tent City so he can have his world, his mindset shifted around what homelessness and homeless men present themselves as. Because I'll just say, it's not a dangerous place to go right now, that little place. Uh, there's sex workers walking Lake City Way. My daughter walks by uh, Rick's or Deja Vu every day for school. Uh, minorities, many of whom are immigrants and refugees in our community. Young people. We have all these young people in our community. I was so stoked to see a group of high schoolers as a former youth pastor in our church. The image of God. What about that person sitting right next to you? Could be a complete stranger. You came here on your own and you have no idea who you're sitting next to. Or it could be your spouse in whom with you lack int intimacy and conversations have become very strained and difficult. Uh, so that's the second thing. Can we learn to see Christ, the image of God, in the people who simply cross our path? How would that change our world if we did? Here's the third thing, and this is a big one. Um, I'm going to get in some hot water. Implications on our civil and human rights. Okay, This is really important for us. Let me ask you, where did the idea that every human being has certain rights come from, inalienable rights, regardless of race, race, national origin, class, religion, that we all have inalienable rights. All men and women are created equal. Some people say it's a Western cultural idea, okay, that our forefathers were somehow inspired as they wrote those words down. Uh, and I, that could be true. But you know what? If you look at the roots of Western thought, the roots of Western thought, uh, Aristotle, he said this, that some races are born to be slaves. He said that. And we all know where our forefathers took that. So where did the idea come from? I mean, there's some hypocrisy in our, community, in our society, isn't there? If, if our forefathers came up with that idea... You look at the United Nations uh, Declaration on Human Rights. They don't define it. They don't tell you where it came from. It just is. Uh, there's a philosopher named Nicholas Waltersdorf who wrote a book recently about this topic, and he summarizes much of the scholarship, because this has been a conversation out there for years now. 
academic, theological, philosophical, arguing that human rights did not emerge during the Enlightenment period or the Greco-Roman period. So our, our society, or even earlier with Aristotle, but through the early church. So he uses, this guy uses all sorts of historical and social research to show this. And he bases his research on these theological themes in the Bible. Themes like restorative justice versus capital punishment. Most of us, if we were raised in conservative Christian communities, would err on the side of capital punishment. We'd find it in Genesis 9. But the Bible, through and through, argues for restorative justice. Uh, things like people, the rights of people with disabilities. You know, people that cannot think for themselves. The elderly, vulnerable children. Many of the communities, like in early, the early Greco-Roman world, sent those people into the ditches because of the plague and other things. And the early church said, no, we're going to form communities that provide safety for these young people, these old people that are being killed. Uh, the, the natural rights of native people, right here, especially in North America, the Bible's mandate to provide sanctuary for refugees. I mean, there are lots of themes that run through Scripture in which the Bible and the early church grabbed onto and said, this is the way we're called to live. Now, one in particular was Walter Zorf's uh, investigation of the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights movement. So he asked this question in his book, just to give you an idea. Where did Martin Luther King Jr. get his inspiration? Uh, King argued that segregation was not impractical for the overall good of a society, right? Where did he get that idea? Uh, that he said, actually, King said it was a sin, time and again. Racism is a sin. Where did he get that idea? You know what I'm going to say. Waltersdorf shows that King drew heavily on, from his, on his sermons, in his sermons, from Genesis 1, 26 to 27. The scripture we're in today. He declares this in one of his sermons, The American Dream. Listen to this. This is Dr. King. The whole concept of the imago dei, which is the image of God, is the idea that all men have something, men and women have something within them that God injected, an ability to have fellowship with God, and, give this, gives, and this gives him or her a uniqueness, worth, and a dignity. And we must never forget this, this, this is an, as a nation. There are, and this is the best part. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. I wish I had Dr. King here with me to say this. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every human being. And so Stevie Wonder didn't come up with that idea. You remember that song, Ebony and Ivory? I just lost all the millennials. Like, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Martin Luther King didn't come up with that idea. It was God's idea. And, if, and, and, and the, he got it from the Word of God. And you know how he got it? He so deeply reflected on the Scriptures. He was a theologian and a pastor. And, and all of his thought and his life were shaped into action by that reflection. And so here's the question. Why is the image of God constantly being trampled all over the earth, constantly? I mean, why is there so much violence and injustice against black men in America right now? Why is our political discourse so caustic? Like, I don't know who watched the debate on Monday. I tried. It was hard. Uh, why are there genocides and slavery in Rwanda just 20-some years ago now? Why do we have poverty? Why do we have refugees and immigrants now that are a stain on our country instead of people we, that used to be a hallmark of our country? Why is there sexual addiction and divorce and abortion? And I, like I said, I know I'm getting in hot water on those topics. But listen, the image of God was implanted in every one of us, and we have been destroying it for generations. Why is that? Okay, this is the disruption. So I want to jump to this. And I noticed last week I tried to do too much. My wife's a teacher. She mentioned that to me. So I'm combining disruption and hope. Okay, so we're going to move into disruption. But it'll be disruption, hope, and we'll finish with culmination. Okay, so just follow me here. Uh, so in, under this theme of disruption, Genesis 3, here's the setting. Well, actually, Genesis 2, there's Adam and Eve and there's God, right? And there's this tree and there's several commands. The first command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? Second command, care for the earth, you know, live in partnership with it. We talked about this last Sunday if you were here. Uh, third command, don't eat from that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, okay? So then you move to Genesis 3. Here's the scene of the crime. The enemy, oh, somebody was snapping, but you were just agreeing. 
Sweet. <laughs> Genesis 3, the enemy, who's this form of a snake, they have this confusing conversation, right? And, and, and here's what the enemy says. Did God say? Which leads to Adam and Eve taking and eating. And like I said, we talked about this a bit last week, uh, how in their taking and eating, Adam and Eve go from being stewards to consumers, okay? And then they put themselves in the center of the story instead of God being in the center. And I would just, we put our sermons on the website, so you're welcome to go back. You can watch me from last week because I was at Green Lake. So I was here and at Green Lake. That's amazing. So, but here's my question for us today. And it's an important question for us to consider for a few moments. Was the first sin here in Genesis 3 lying, cheating, and stealing or something else? Okay? Put it in terms of our own society. Was it a civil rights violation? Uh, was it ignoring or rejecting a stranger on the street? Was it working so hard that you ignored your children? You know, like Hopper Gibson. Or you were abusive toward them. Was it those things or was it something else? Is there a deeper sin behind those behaviors? You see, those are the things we normally call sin. Uh, and that's misbehavior, some sort of misbehavior. And I'd like to argue that it's actually something, sin, much, much, much deeper than that. And to make that argument, I want to compare Adam and Eve with Jesus. So we're going to move to hope right now, and we'll come back to the end, at the end here. Uh, so Adam is often called, Adam and Eve, often called the first Adam, and Jesus is called the second Adam. So I think it's good to compare them when you're trying to see the story of God as a, story, as a narrative. So like, this is in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, where Paul, who's the interpreter of Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament, compares Jesus as an Adam. And in, even in Colossians 1, where, that we read, Jesus is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. So we know Jesus is, is human, and he's somehow displaying God's image to us. In fact, Paul uses the Greek word icon in those scriptures. Jesus is the icon of God. The, Jesus says it himself in John 14, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father, okay? So do you know what that means, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? He's the only perfect image of God. Everything else is a reflection of God. We're, we're image bearers, or in some cases, broken images, broken mirrors, uh, shattered glass, you might say. So what made Jesus the second Adam, the, the image of God, the icon of God? Okay, what made him that? Was it his good looks? No. Go back to my first point. Although he had a great beard, and that's I'm just going for it. Uh, was it perfect behavior? Like this perfectly moral life, you know? He was a sinless man, never lied, cheated, or stole. Or, and I'm just going to say no. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not suggesting that Jesus sinned in these ways, okay? Please don't hear that. I'm not saying Jesus made all these critical errors in his life. And so that's okay, cool. Just get drunk tomorrow, you know, and go to work, whatever. What I am asking though is what enabled Jesus to live in that way in total alignment with the word of God, okay? With the law of God. Was it that he was a superhuman being, uh, you know, or something else? And here's what the Bible suggests to us about that, that question. Uh, we often look at Jesus as the world's greatest teacher, Okay. Like, he was an amazing teacher, profoundly gifted healer and prophet, uh, that, he lived, and he, that he lived this perfectly moral life. That's what made him unique, image of God, our moral exemplar. There's many traditions out there that actually articulate this. Um, and by proxy, we just think that's what it means to have this faith in Jesus, is we have to live this unbendable, undeniable, and inalienable life. We have to be moral. We have to be great teachers, gifted healers, prophets, all those things, right? That's what we think. Uh, live a good life. Don't smoke. Don't cheat. Don't pay. Like, don't cheat on your spouse. Pay your taxes. Don't speed or do speed. Any of those things, right? Uh, a life that adheres to the commandments and the regulations and the rules. That's what we think it means to follow Jesus. I don't know how many of you are raised inside that way of thinking in the church. I wasn't raised in the church, so I, I'm genuinely curious how many were raised thinking that way. Like many of us, and we're detoxing a little bit <laughs> here at Bethany, and that's not wrong. Like, to think that way, I don't think that's a bad... I mean, like, I hope my kids are taught those things by us, by me. Uh, but we miss something critical if we just reduce Jesus to that, to moral excellence. Uh, I mean, Jesus was the world's greatest teacher. We believe that. He possessed power to heal and deliver. We declare that he was a prophet. He lived a perfect life. All those good things. 
But he did so because guess what? He was the world's greatest listener. That's why Jesus was able to live out God's excellence, because he first listened. Before he ever opened his mouth, he had to first open his ears. And, what, what, and he opened his ears to the Father God, and this is what the Father tells him. Before he performs a single miracle, God looks at Jesus at his baptism, and he says, you are my beloved, you're my son, and I delight in you. And then he sends him out to the desert to listen some more for 40 more days, 40 more nights. Just listen, listen. In fact, Jesus often reminded people in, in his stories and his teaching of his, and his words of the power to, where he got his power to perform miracles. So John 12, I've not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment about what to say. Isn't that bizarre? I don't speak my own words. I don't live my own life. I don't, I don't, nothing, my life is not my own. My will is not my own. This is Jesus Christ saying this. Uh, Jesus' power came from God. And, and, and the reason was is because he was absolutely available to do God's will. He made himself totally available. He, he knew what to say to the woman caught in adultery. That's why we don't need his words there, why he's just writing in the sand, because he knew what to say to her, and God had taught him that. Uh, he knew, he, Peter, as he faltered, you know, Peter constantly faltering, Jesus knew how to bring him up. Nicodemus and Thomas, in their doubts, I don't know how many of us have ever doubted God and doubted God's will and doubted if God's loving. <laughs> Jesus learned that from God, how to bring those people along. He knew, how to, he knew to stop and heal the woman bleeding in the gospel. He had been bleeding for I don't remember how many years now, but bleeding, bleeding. And he, remember, she touches his, the hem of his garment, and he said, who touched me? I felt the power go out from me. And we go, oh, was Jesus God? No, he was listening and available to God. That's why. God said, stop. He knew to go back and, and raise his friend Lazarus from the dead because God redirected his steps over and over again. He went to the cross for the same reason. I don't want to do it, God. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to do it either. Follow my will. Uh, Jesus listened to the Father. Isaiah 54, of Jesus, 700 years before his birth. Listen to this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher. This is a prophecy about Jesus, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Many of us have been sustained by the words of Jesus. Morning by morning, he wakens me, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. So Jesus is a great teacher because he listens to the Father. You might even say the father wakened Jesus every morning so Jesus could go to school. Uh, morning by morning, the sacred classroom was opened. And Jesus never forgot that he was a learner. <laughs> That's the key here. As well as a prophet, a vessel that needed to be filled every day. So he made it his priority. Like in the morning while it was dark, Jesus went out. And what did he do? He went to a deserted place and he prayed. Did it a lot. So before he had anything to say, Jesus was all ear for God. And this, this is the vital point for us to grasp today, I think, because listening is not something we're born with the ability to do. We don't do it well in our culture. We can hear, like you're hearing me. Are you listening? Psalm 46, 40 verse 6 puts it this way, a, sort of a confession. You've given me an open ear. And if you look at that phrase in a study Bible, I... I have a study Bible at home, and, or you refer to the like, margin notes. Some of you have them below the page or on the side. Um, here's what that phrase literally means. Ears you have dug out for me. Eugene Peterson colorfully describes like, God swinging a pickaxe, digging ears in our granite blockheads so we can hear, really hear what God's speaking to us. And here's the deal. Really quickly, back to disruption before we finish. Adam and Eve were blockheads. They were the pinnacle of blockheadedness, which is the opposite of Jesus. Uh, they did not want to listen to God. They could not listen to the voice of God, though he was right there with them. He was in their presence, the scriptures tell us. Uh, check this out, Genesis 3. We often, and we often hear the first sin is Adam and Eve eating the fruit. Fact check this. The first sin was not an outward action. It was an inward unbelief. Adam and Eve, they believed the lies of the enemy. Genesis 3.5, did God really say you'd become like him? 
Because if you back that train up for a moment to Genesis 127, what does Genesis 127 teach us? They're made in the image of God. So how much more do they need to become like God? How much less like God are they? Nothing's happened in the story yet except for fellowship and union with God. So what changed? See, the first sin wasn't taking that fruit or doing some act of disobedience. We think of it. We reduce it to that, breaking a commandment or a rule, whatever it is. It's the inability to listen and understand and live out the truth of who you are. That's sin. And the application and the challenge we face today in our lives is exactly the same that they faced. Will we believe what God says about us as well as all of humankind? Will I believe that, that truth? Or will I make choices today and many days about what to do with my time and my money and my body based on other criteria? Will I listen to the voices crying out at the magazine stands that say you're inadequate because of your body size and your shape? Uh, that, or that you lack intimacy because of your lack of sexual appeal, or, or that you can somehow put success into 10 steps or one little pill. Like, that's, that a black man is a threat, or a Muslim is a Muslim refugee, or a conservative Republican is a narrow-minded bigot, or a, a liberal Democrat, you know, whatever. Just put those categories out there for us. Or we listen to the voice of God, who proclaims, declares delight, forgiveness, freedom, invites us to wholeness. This is God. Do you believe those things? And do you believe those things about yourself? That you are delighted in, you're forgiven, you're whole, you're a son or a daughter. Do you believe it? Because that is the truth of this story we're in. And until you really grasp it, your default mode will be blockheadedness. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. And it's hard to believe, isn't it? See some of you sitting here going, yeah, We hear those things. I've heard them. Jack, I've been raised in the church. I've been hearing those things for, this is not the first sermon I've heard about this. Thank you. We look at Jesus and we say, you know, I find myself saying this, good for Jesus. He believed perfectly. He listened. He did it. Yay, Jesus. Nice that he did it. I can't. I'm full of doubt. I'm full of anxiety. I'm full of shame. I'm frustrated about where my life's going. I'm cynical about where the world's headed. I'm just, this isn't going to happen. Nothing has changed since I've started following Jesus. Is anyone with me in that boat? Because I don't want to be alone. A few of you are. Good. Here's the good news. And we're going to finish now. You don't have to. You don't, you don't have to. You don't have to do it anymore, friends. You, you don't have to worry about your ability anymore. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5. If I'm in Christ, guess what you are? New creation. Okay, so you're created in the image of God. Your life is in Christ. You're absolutely a new creation now. And this is saying, it provides this key for us as we reflect on this, on, we transition from cul- uh, to culmination. That if I'm so yoked with Jesus, I put my life with Jesus, I put all my cards on Jesus, whatever, however you want to put it, everything, Jesus, <laughs> I'm so yoked with him that now, as I live a life of availability to him, remember, he's available to the Father Every day, that's what makes him unique, but, but not totally unique. As I make myself available to him, Jesus is given the freedom to express his life through me. Anyone who's in Christ, whose life is in Christ, but whose Christ is in, is a new creation, okay? So no matter the junk or the inadequacy or the hurt or the shame or the guilt that I bring to the table that's so pervasive and suffocating, no matter what I don't bring to the table... <laughs> Because Jesus expressed and expresses the image of God fully when our lives are in him, we will too. Not always fully, but really, you will. It happens. I see a lot of God in front of me, a lot of Jesus. And so here's culmination, a few practical handles, how we make this real in our lives. Uh, The book of Hebrews puts it simply this way. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. He's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He is tempted in every way that we've been tempted, and therefore he's able to help us in our temptation. In this way and in every way, he's the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews 3.1, fix your thoughts on Jesus. These are the things he did. All you have to do. You hear all those things he did. (laughs) You don't have to do it. 
Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Uh, we're going to sing a song in a moment. Fix my eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Open your ears to Jesus. Open your hearts to him, and he'll do the rest. Humanity is restored. Relationships are restored. Our society will be restored inasmuch as we learn to listen to the voice of God, learn his character, and then see his face in Jesus. Uh, so here's a few ways you do this. Connect with him through connecting with others. Like, get into God's word, but how many of you are just doing that here now? Like, how many of us have been in God's word this week with others? We're the body of Christ. We've been given this great resource to get into God's word with, and some of us are doing it alone. Uh, Jesus did it alone sometimes, but not always. Jesus was not a solo Christian. So are you, are, you, are you devoted to fellowship in the way that Acts 2 would have us be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to, and to fellowship together? That's together. That's the together word, okay? So that's the first thing. The second is just serving him. Like, again, we're called the body of Christ. There are ways to see him in our city, in your community, by simply touching other bodies, by going to your neighborhood food bank, by serving at our community meal, by going to Green Lake and helping at the, the women's shelter there. They're, they're serving in one of our Sunday school classrooms and just being the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, walking home from work someday and see who God, I mean, it was amazing for me on Friday to see who God brings across my path. Taking your son or daughter through Tent City just for a walk. Let their mindset be shifted. Go on one of our mission trips. There's ways to serve God through our church and then outside of our church. But the body of Christ can be touched. You with me? Last thing. Just be with Jesus. Where you can listen to him and the inner voice of love. Uh, when did you last sit down in silence? Think of your life. And just listen to God. Like you're sitting there, wherever you sit, and say to God, I'm available. Would you remind me of who you are? Uh, and how you see me today. See, we're made to image God as people, but we're looking to other things. We're looking to our work, our significance, our success, our morality, our attractiveness, our social media feed, and sometimes our, even our significant relationships, as good as those are. And Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So what's going to attract your heart back to God? What's going to heal our broken world? God, we make you the center. That's what we have to say each day. And here's the declaration from 1 Corinthians 13. We love this passage at weddings, but listen to this. It's written to the church. Perfect love, Jesus, casts out all fear. Perfect love dispels hatred. Perfect love brings healing and wholeness and renewal but love and perfection only, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the voice of love. He is the person of love. He is here to heal our community and our, our world. Do you believe it? Okay, a few of you do. <laughs> Let's pray together, and then we're going to uh, take a moment to fix our eyes on Jesus before coming to this table together, okay? Join me. Jesus, we thank you uh, for this declaration in Hebrews that you are the author, that you are the perfecter. And God, we face this broken world, all of us do, and some of us are affected deeply by it. Uh, I should say all, most of us are affected deeply by it. And God, many of us bring our broken lives as well, um, where there's been a betrayal of trust, a loss of hope, um, a sense of loneliness and despair, whatever it might be, confusion. And so even as we, we lean in God as, as your people, we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, trusting that as the image of, of God, you'll bring those things into our lives. Hope, healing, wholeness, renewal. We trust you for this now, Jesus, and we worship you and you alone. Amen.